Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our amazing guest, once again, is Paul Boag, CRO expert and the guru of all designers, and we're going to talk about uh, managing the design process today. This show is brought to you by Userlist, an email automation platform for SaaS companies. It matches the complexity of your customer data, including many-to-many relationships between users and companies. Book your demo call today at userlist.com. Hi, Paul. Hello. It's good to be back again. It feels like only moments ago we did this, but... Indeed, indeed. So while we were discussing our previous topic, and we're going to link to that episode, we uncovered another topic that deserves <laughs> that deserves attention. And like, if I were a young designer, I would just listen to you now and uh, save five years of life and uh, <laughs> 10 years of nervous breakdowns. So uh, <laughs> very, very excited about this. If someone wants to learn your bio, they can head over to the previous episode. But sure. maybe in a couple of sentences, recap what you do and what kind of companies, what kind of scale you're working at these days. Sure. So, Jane, as you said to me before we started recording this, I've been doing this a very long time, right? Or, or pushing 30 years at this point, which is, is terrifying, isn't it? I'm a consultant these days, an independent consultant. I tend to work with large organizations, quite bureaucratic organizations, typically as well, government bodies. I'm working in the University of Oxford at the moment, but also big corporates and that kind of thing. So the conversation of managing design projects is very close to my heart because there is a lot of complexity in the projects that I manage. But to be quite frank, Even the supposed simplest of projects can turn into a nightmare, as I'm sure many people listening to this can attest. So, yeah, applies everywhere, really. Yes, and uh, this is super timely because at Userlist, these days, we are just rolling out the done-for-you direction, which is basically... Mm -hmm myself and and the team going backwards to consulting that we so much wanted to escape. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I'm like brushing off productized consulting skills, you know, and and the process does apply so much to any creative deliverable, doesn't it? Um, Any any industry that uh, solves a problem, but has creative ways of doing that. Yeah. Shall we start with the design process? What are the key steps that your typical UX slash design project goes through? Well, what's the typical steps or what are the steps that I go through? Because the two are, two are very different. Well, let's do both. <laughs> yeah. So if you think about what happens in a normal design project, somebody, normally somebody in senior management has a bright idea, don't they? You know, uh, oh, we, well, I'll give you a great example. Someone recently came to me and said, yeah, yeah, I want to create this landing page where we show our building and, and bits, you know, and then it explodes out and you can see what happens on different floors. And and I'm like, what? Why are you doing this? What's the point? So so somebody comes up with a bright idea. And then normally, if it's a larger organization, which a lot of mine are, um, some committee is formed to kind of define what that project is. Then once that's been done, then a brief is produced of some description that goes out either to tender if it's external people or goes to an in-house people, normally to a project manager who who builds a team to deliver that, that, um, that project. And the designer then starts um, visualizing certain elements of the project. Then after that's been visualized, it uh, it goes through a sign-off process and it gets handed to the development team who build it and it goes live. But there are all kinds of problems with that, which I'm sure everybody's experienced. First is there's no guarantee that that idea that that senior manager came up with was any good whatsoever. Often the people that are creating that brief are not digital experts. And so there are assumptions made, there are inaccuracies in it. There's, again, no evidence to support the success of the project. When it goes into the design process, you can often get people start to discover more, get a better understanding of what it is that they want to achieve. And so you get into scope creep. 
Then, because you've got a committee of people that you're getting signed off with, you get stuck in iteration hell and designed by committee when you go round and round in circles. And then when you finally pass off the design to the developer, the developer turns around and says, I can't build this within our existing technology stack, but you've already got everybody's agreement to sign it off. So you then kind of bastardize the design and it is finally put online where content is poured into it and the whole thing looks terrible and you've lost your portfolio piece. So that's the typical process. Um, It's not one I favor, (laughs) as you might have (laughs) gathered. So for me, my process, and we can't get into this in a huge amount of detail, but the process that I do is I break that down into blocks. Because most of these projects involve creating some kind of timeline that's a work of fiction, right? You know, someone turns around to you and says, I mean, I'm working on websites sometimes that have got hundreds of thousands of pages. And and somebody goes, well, how much do we need to budget for this? I don't know. How am I supposed to know that? That's impossible to make a judgment. But even on smaller sites... It could go in so many different directions. There are so much variables. It's impossible to do any of that. So what I do instead is I break it down into a series of separate projects. So my first project, my first engagement with a client is always a discovery project, right? And typically that is where I do my user research, where I do my competitive analysis, where I do my business understanding and validate the idea, all of that kind of stuff. Now, if you just work on small projects, that might be no more than a single meeting, which you charge the client for, right? If you work on big things, it can be weeks and weeks worth of work, okay? But either way, you do that project. And that project, the output of that is enough information that you've validated the idea enough to move into the second phase and to price and scope the second project accurately. And the second project is a prototyping project. And the great thing is you could get to the end of the discovery phase and go, this was a terrible idea, we shouldn't be doing it. And you haven't committed yourself to the whole big endeavor. You've just committed to that discovery phase. So you can walk away at that point. Equally, you could get to the end of that discovery phase and go, it's a good idea in principle, but we're going to need to change some stuff with it. And so scope creep is possible at that point. You can pivot and change because you haven't committed to the whole project. And you're not just this brief hasn't been created in isolation. Then if you do move into the prototyping stage, the prototype that you build, right, That becomes the functional specification for the actual development phase. So instead of some document where everything's hypothetical, right, and can be interpreted in a million different ways, the developer can go and look at the prototype and go, that is exactly what we're going to be building. And the great thing about a prototype is you can test it with real users. Everybody has the same understanding of what is being produced because they can see it with their own eyes, right? So... That prototype phase allows the developers now to accurately cost and predict how long the build is going to take. So now we can get an accurate cost for the build. And we might go, that's too expensive. We need to change the prototype. We need, or we might just drop the project entirely. It might not test well, for example, at the prototype stage. And then so you go into the build, uh, the build phase. Um, where the website is built, but now you've got a validated idea that you know users are going to respond to that's well-researched, you've reduced the risk and the cost of the build phase, and you've introduced opportunities for adapting and scope creep, and that scope creep isn't inherently bad. Scope creep can be good when you learn new things, so you've got to build it into the process. So that's the kind of overarching process that I use, but of course the devil's in the detail. What really matters with these projects is what you're actually, how you run things like the prototype stage in order to manage your stakeholders and your stakeholder relationships. Tell us more about the prototype. You mentioned a potential website project with like a thousand pages in it. So what does a prototype look for for that? Because it sounds like a huge volume of work. You don't have a prototype for the whole thing, do you? No, no. So there are different approaches that I use in different circumstances, but let's take a typical project, a typical site redesign. The first thing I do is I tend to split aesthetics from 
structure, right? So normally somebody will produce a high, you know, a high fidelity mock-up in Figma or whatever, right? And show it to the client or stakeholders. And, and the problem with that is that there often gets a, a lot of confusion between you know, the feedback of, I don't like the blue or whatever. <laughs> and so the design gets rejected even though actually it's an aesthetic thing that's the problem, not actually a structural thing. So I tend to approach each separately. So I'll, I'll do the aesthetic side through mood boarding, style tiles, that kind of stuff. Then I'll do a wireframing side where I'll, I'll do, you know, all the structural and um, information hierarchy on pages and all that kind of stuff. In terms of the scope of the prototype, that depends very much on the budget and the appropriateness of the project. Sometimes... My prototypes, if it's a, a quick, easy little little job, will be nothing more than, you know, maybe a few a, a kind of wireframes of a few key templates, like the home page, a standard text page, and then maybe a few of the interactive elements like, you know, forms and, and those kinds of things. If it's a flow like an e-commerce site, I'll do the flow of the, through the checkout process, key user journeys, that kind of stuff. But no, I wouldn't prototype the whole thing. But what I would do, and if I'm faced with a very, very big site, then you get into a completely different approach, which I'm doing at the moment. I'm working with the University of Florida, where we're re-architecting their entire site of, you know, thousands of pages. And in that scenario, you're kind of almost going back to the drawing board and saying, okay, what's the information architecture? So that you're doing card sorting, you're doing uh, tree you know, structures that people navigate through. And you're looking at, well, what questions people are asking? What do they want answered? So I will tend to create in those kinds of situations really an empty framework, right? So imagine a website, but with no CSS, right? Or very little CSS that basically allows you to click through the pages and just see bullet point questions that are going to be answered on any particular page. So, you know, it's not like a full wireframe. It's just literally what content is going to be addressed on this page and maybe links off to the old site where that content has been, you know, already exists and we can just grab it and pull it in. So so there are kind of different tools for different circumstances and scenarios, if that makes sense. Let's tackle the presentation matter first. Sure. And then we'll segue into navigating committees, but presentation first. So let's say okay. you've uh, done your discovery phase, you've retreated, yes. done the work, and then there is this first most important meeting when you have to ship something relatively big. Sure. How do you do that? Okay. Is there a meeting? Is it async? Yeah, should there be a meeting? <laughs> yes. Yes, there should be a meeting. Right. First of all, let's step back and talk about how important it is to prepare the ground before you go into that meeting, right? So at the very beginning of my projects, I will, the first thing I'll do is define roles, right? I'll say what my role is and what their role is because they don't necessarily understand what their role is. And I say that there are certain characteristics of their role. One is that their job is to point out problems with the design, not necessarily to come up with solutions. It's my job to come up with solutions. For example, I will say to them, so instead of coming to me and say, change the blue to pink, right, which is a solution, instead come to me and say, I'm worried that our preteen girl audience isn't going to like the corporate blue, right? You can say, what about pink? That's fine. You're allowed to express an opinion, right? But, you know, you actually start by saying, you know, what the problem is, because then I, as a designer, can offer you more value. And I might say, yeah, pink's a great idea. Or I might say, let's add more unicorns and fairies or whatever it is preteen girls like. Right. So that's one thing I do is define the relationship. I also make them responsible for the business objectives. Right. And, and expressing things in terms of business needs. And I make them responsible for user needs. Because the thing that I've learned is where you make somebody responsible, say you are responsible for this, then they tend to think in those terms, right? So instead of coming with what, what your their personal opinion is, they think about where it's going to conflict with business needs or user needs. So I do that kind of preparation beforehand. 
The other preparation I do is I try and engage stakeholders through the design creation process. I think a lot of people have been so badly stung from doing that that they try and exclude the the client or stakeholder. But that's actually the worst thing you can do because when you push someone out, they fight to be heard, right? And so it creates conflict in the relationship. So instead, what you want to do is introduce controlled ways of involving the stakeholder. So, for example, I will do things like, let's say we're we're looking at branding, right? Uh, The branding for a website. I will brainstorm them, and we don't have time to get into all the ways I do this, but I will brainstorm words that represent, that we want the design to represent. We want it to feel enthusiastic, passionate, you know, friendly, whatever, right? So you get a list of words like that. And I will do that with the client. And then maybe even do some mood boarding around those words. Because the more the client feels like they're involved, right, the more committed they become to the design, the more of a sense of ownership they have over the design, and the more likely they are to defend it, and the less likely they are to reject it. So I'll also get them doing wireframing exercises as well to to get them engaged and get them involved. So all this happens before the presentation. The other thing I will do before the presentation is some really lightweight testing, right? So I will do things like five-second tests and something called a semantic differential survey. And I'll do, what's the other one I do a lot? A first-click test. If you do a Google on my um, do Google on my website, search on my website, boagworld.com, for design testing. You'll find an article which lays this out in a lot more detail. So basically, I do a bit of testing. Then the other thing I do <laughs> before the presentation is, if possible, I will have a brief Zoom call with as many of the people that are going to be in that meeting as possible individually, right? Now, that may seem like a lot of work. And if there's 20 people in the room, there's obviously no way you're going to do that. You just pick out the the most influential people. Now, the reason that I do this is, one, it makes them feel more appreciated and listened to, right? And like they're important and they're getting a sneak peek before anybody else. But two, most importantly, it gives me an opportunity to tailor my message to them. Right. So, let for example, let's say I talk to the marketing person first. I'll talk about how my design is going to improve um, conversion rate, right, or create greater engagement or lead to more leads, right. If I'm talking to the IT person, I talk about how it's going to be easy to develop and easy to maintain. If I'm talking to the finance person, I talk about how it's going to save money for the organisation over the long term. Now, if you go into a committee meeting, right, with all of those people, you can't say all of those things, but you can say it to them individually. So I have a little conversation with each beforehand. So by the time I step into that room, right, A, I have basically won over the key stakeholders already. B, the design isn't going to come as a surprise to them because they've already been involved in creating the design. So there's none of that ta-da moment where everybody goes, oh, shit, that wasn't what I thought it was going to be, right? And see, I've got evidence to support it. So really, if you do that route, that presentation is rubber stamp, done, move on. The one other piece of information before we get into feedback and design by committee and that kind of thing, the other piece is... I don't make that a big sign-off moment, right? One of the things that especially external agencies do is they get the client to sign off a design in blood, right? Because they're terrified of the designer just uh, them changing their minds through the build, right? I don't do that. And you might think that is madness, right? But the reason I don't do it is because if you get sign-off, push for sign-off at that point, you make that presentation and that meeting a much, much bigger deal in their minds, right? I have to make this website perfect. This is my last chance to get it right. And so they pick and they pick and they pick at it, right? But if you go, for example, if they turn around and say, well, I'm not not 100%, you know, I'm not really sure about the colour. And I'll go, oh, don't worry about that. We can, we can always tweak it post-launch if we need to, right? 
and then they forget about it. <laughs> they don't. It, it, you know, nobody ever remembers. And if they do remember, it's changing a couple of lines of CSS later down the line, right? So really, you de-escalate the whole situation by not making that a big sign-off moment. And 90% of the time, they forget what they asked for anyway. I love every single uh, line of wisdom that you just <laughs> shared. Let's talk about committees. Yes. And do you ever get on calls where you would actually pick something in real time apart? No. Or is it always with this kind of prep and it's just an organizational thing? Right. So we go into the meeting, we do the presentation, everybody's sitting there. At the end of that, I, for a start, I schedule the meeting to not allow enough time for questions. <laughs> Amazing. Right? So I'll go into it and I'll get to the end of my presentation. I'll leave, I'll leave 10, 15 minutes, something like that, but not a lot. I'll get to the end of the presentation and I'll say, okay, I've just hit you with a whole load of information right now, right? Take your time, go and digest everything that you've heard. And here's a video, right? that I've prepared beforehand, which shows you the design and gives you a summary of what we've just talked about, right? Go away, show that to other people, get opinions, get feedback, sleep on it. And then I'm going to drop you an email tomorrow. Oh, no, no, I put this. You're no, no, I don't say that. I say at the end of that video, I've asked you some questions. Drop me an email and let me know your answers to those questions. Now, why do I do all of that? First of all, what normally happens is you show them a, a visual, don't you? You show them a screenshot or a Figma thing, and they take that link away. And what does they do? They show it to everybody else, right? But those other people have got no context. They've seen none of the testing. They've you know, been not involved in it at all. And that person just says to them, what do you think of it? And they go, I don't really like the color, right? Or whatever, okay? But if you give them a video as the deliverable, then whenever they share that video with someone else, which you can't stop them doing, no matter how much you try, whenever you show that video to somebody, they show that video to somebody else, that person gets you talking over it, explaining the testing, explaining what happened beforehand, all the background, etc. And then at the end of that, you can ask structured questions because one of the big problems with the feedback sessions is that the feedback is normally very poor quality. It's, I don't like this. Can you move this here? So instead, I ask incredibly structured questions. I'm, going to, I'm just trying to see if I can find the list that I use. I don't know whether I'm going to be able to find it quickly enough, which is a shame. But essentially, I have a whole massive list of of questions that I tend to have at the end of every presentation that I have, you know, at the end of all of these videos. So it'll be questions like, what do you, you know, it, does this address the business objectives we agreed at the beginning of the project, right? Does it support the needs of users and the user groups that we aimed at? Do you believe users will associate the brand keywords that we agreed at the beginning of the project with the design? Does the design incorporate the stylistic elements that we created together when we were mood boarding? Does the design reflect the wireframes that you were involved in creating? Does the design communicate the value proposition we agreed at the outset of the project, right? And if the user is then going, well, yes, 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 even if they personally hate the design, right, <laughs> they can't say no to it because it's fulfilled all of the requirements and everything they previously agreed to. So it shifts the conversation. Now, another key aspect here is notice as well that I'm not saying a lot of people say, oh, yeah, we, we only want one point of feedback, right? That, you know, so in other words, I don't want everybody writing to me, all the different committee members. You, you give me the feedback you want and I'll do it. That is, again, worst thing you can possibly do because you lose control at that point because they're having a conversation about how to fix the design without you being involved, right? And you're excluded and reduced to a basically a pixel pusher. So instead, you want to put yourself in the position of power. So when you send out that video, you say, hey, you know, drop me an email with any your answers to those questions and any additional considerations or things that you think I need to know. Then all of that stuff comes to me, right? 
That puts me in the position of power. Because if they were doing it in the room, if we were having that conversation in the room, one person will say, oh, I don't feel it meets user needs. And even though everybody else thinks it does, they'll start redesigning it on the fly, right? But if the, all the feedback comes to me, I can choose to ignore that one person. Or if there are several people that think it doesn't meet user needs, then I can dig into that. I can go back and ask questions of each of those individual people and find out why. I might be able to make some suggestions about how we could improve or fix the design. I'm in control by using this process. So, yeah, that, that tends to be how I design well, or deal with design by committee. I basically divide and conquer. You know, I split them up so they're not operating as a cohesive whole. But I do do the I normally do an initial presentation to them all because they want it, basically. What does that video more specifically include? Like okay. any secret sauce? And to be honest, there is a certain type of personality. And for these people sitting down and recording a video into staring in the void, it's like the worst nightmare. And I'm among yeah. those. Like it's the worst thing you should yeah. you can make me do is record a yeah. video for nobody. Like tips and That's tricks fine. and what. <laughs> I I totally get that. I totally understand that. No problem at all. What you do is you sit down and script it, right? You write it out. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you don't show yourself on camera. It's just a voiceover and showing the design. You don't need to appear on it. I do it with me on it because as you can probably tell from my tone of voice, I sell with enthusiasm. I'll get people excited about the design. But I know that that's not for everybody and that's fine. So don't include a video of yourself. Just read a script. That's all you need to do. And if you really don't even want to do that, then use one of these AI tools to read it for you. But ideally, I think you want your own voice. That's a bit shit if you get to that point. Well, well I'm glad at least uh, that's yeah. zooming really far out. Yes, you want to record it yourself. That's, that's yeah. a good tip. <laughs> So basically then the video itself starts with recapping what you've already agreed, right? Because there's something called, I've forgotten the name something of it. Something like mirroring, but probably. Yeah, right? it's not. It's something bias, confirmation bias. That's it. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. once somebody says that they're going to do something, right, they want to be consistent with that thing. So it So you repeat back to them all the things they've agreed. These are the keywords we agreed. This is the, um, the, the mood boards we agreed. This is the, the wireframing that we agreed together. Bang, 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 bang. Those are the things, right? Quick recap of that. Then a quick summary of any testing that you've done. You know, for example, I, I mentioned something called a semantic differential survey. That basically said, is where you survey people to see whether that list of brand keywords Oh, the impressions that people actually get from looking at the design. It's a you know a quick one question survey, really easy to do. Then I might use a tool like Attention Insights, which is an eye tracking prediction tool, which will predict where people will look on a page so that you can reassure people, yes, the logo is big enough. And yes, people do spot the content that's not above the fold and all that kind of crap that people come up with. So I then do that. Then I show them the design. Right. Then I will probably normally preempt some common objections. Right. There may be certain things, and I do this in the presentation as well, that people are likely to say, like, for example, I don't like the color or why isn't the logo bigger? And so I will preempt those and explain why I've done what I've done before they say them. And the reason that I do that is once something comes out of somebody's mouth, especially in a live meeting when there's their colleagues around, they don't tend to back down because people don't want to lose face. And especially if they're a senior person in that room, once they've said it, that's it, right? It doesn't <laughs> matter how compelling your argument is. So if you predict what, if you're going to guess what they're going to say and actually raise that issue, then they can choose to stay quiet without losing face. And then finally, I wrap up with those that list of questions that I just ran through. How many calls do you usually have on the over the course of the project? Do you prefer doing most of the things uh, async? So like mm -hmm. one big presentation, that's like a classic mandatory thing. And yeah. then the rest of it, async or a little calls. And, and the reason why I'm asking this is that there is 
a certain problem that consultants have is keeping the client on track on the timeline. And the way mm -hmm. they do that to keep them accountable is to just have those calendar checkpoints where they yeah. must get them on the call and must sign off something. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like, doesn't sound like a thing you would do, but I'm curious, no. what's your solution? So I, every project manager that hears this is just going to spin in their, their proverbial <laughs> graves. I don't commit to timelines mm -hmm. in that way. So I will only provide a timeline for the next. Do you remember I split the project down into chunks and I discovery, prototype, build. I will only create a timeline for the next chunk, right? So if we're about to start discovery, I'll tell them the timeline for discovery, but that's it. And I'll mm -hmm. give them a price for that. And that's it. Because you cannot accurately commit to the whole thing. And you're just lying if you do it. You, you know, if you if you give a timeline for a, a you know, a rebuilding anything other than the smallest of websites, you're lying to your clients. You're lying to your stakeholders because you've got no idea of whether you're going to stick to that timeline because it's a work of fiction. Right. Until you get into the details of the project. So, so I avoid the problem in that regards. That said, I don't ever have meetings except that one presentation. No, even that, I wouldn't call it a meeting. Maybe, maybe that one is. All of the other engagements I do are activities or workshops, right? There's a difference. So a meeting is for discussion. I never do discussion, right? Because if you do discussion, it goes off on tangents, you lose control of it, etc. right? Instead, I guide people through exercises. Now, depending on the project, I will do more or less of them as is appropriate. So let me give you an example. I don't have scheduled in things like you just described. But if we come across a problem, right, let's say, for example, I'm going, oh, there's a lot of stakeholders involved in this. And all of them are kind of competing for what appears on their homepage, right? They all want their little thing on the homepage. In that case, I will call a meeting of those, a meeting of those stakeholders to run a user attention point exercise, which is an exercise that I have that essentially forces the, the people that are attending. Well, no, it force isn't the right word. It educates and nudges the user, uh, the, the stakeholders to make decisions about the hierarchy that goes on the page. And if you want to know about user attention point exercise, go to my website, Google it. There's 18 years worth of all of this stuff. So anything I've mentioned is on their site. So, yeah, I will tend to have exercises to address certain problems as they arise. Another common one that I do at the beginning of a project is I do um, I will have a, a workshop to agree a set of design principles. Right. So these are principles that kind of underpin how we're going to make decisions about the design during the process. Because, again, you could, it's easy to get people to agree to stuff in the abstract. Like, for example, we're going to design around user needs. Right. It's a really good user principle to have written down so that when you get further into the project, you can wave it in their face in a very kind and gentle way, obviously, and say, you know, we need to think about user needs. We haven't done any testing. How can we claim to be worrying about user needs? I thought you're kidding because this is such an abstract and uh, top level and uh, generic thing. No. It's, it's actually very useful just to have what. I basically agree a set of design principles. And you see, there's so much that we presume almost goes without saying, right? For UX Desi designers. For UX designers, <laughs> but doesn't for stakeholders. So what you do, I at the beginning of a project, I will sit down and think of, right, what are all the ways I know projects go wrong, <laughs> right? So things, <laughs> like, things like we don't do user testing. Right. Things like we forget to worry about user net needs, things like we end up reinventing Facebook or something because people think that that would be a good idea or whatever, whatever you come up with. And then what I do is I run an exercise that is um, helps people pick out a set of design principles that address those objections. So, 
for example, we we you know we always prioritize user needs would be one. We make decisions with data. That's another good one for for dealing with you know people that don't do testing, etc. And then when those issues come up in the project. You can then go, well, we did agree at the beginning that we were always going to prioritize user needs. And now we're prioritizing business needs. Do we need to, you know, reconsider that and go, you know, and actually address our fundamental uh, design principles? Or have we gone off on a tangent here? So I'll do that kind of thing. There is a certain type of personality that you can find among clients or one of the stakeholders that you ask a constructive question they reply to a completely not constructive answer and they expand into a 10-year vision of something that can never possibly be done realistically. Yeah. yeah. Just a type of a person, like a visionary. Yes. How do you deal with them? Okay. I mean, there's a whole load list of these people we could go through. Micromanagers are another one. <laughs> the, the, the swoop and poop manager where it flies into the project at the end and poops all over it. There's, there's a whole load of these different people that you kind of learn to deal with over the time. The, the big picture visionary guy is a difficult one. They, they don't have the, the ability to think at the micro level, right? They're not details person. So you can't expect them to be something they're not, right? So there are, there are two things, right? The, these people, they come and go with ideas a lot, right? So they'll have an idea and then five minutes later, they'll have another idea. So we need to deal with that. And then the other aspect of their personality we need to deal with is their vagueness, right? Um, that they make big sweeping statements, right? Let's deal with the vagueness first. So they'll come back and they'll say something like, yeah, in my head, I'm envisaging a, you know, uh, you know, that we will, everything will be joined up and people will be able to move, you know, from one thing to another without, you know, from different devices and across different channels. And it will be something, yeah, something vague like that, right? So in that, I say, yeah, you know, that, that I really love that. That sounds amazing. What, and then, then I will do two things. First of all, I'll go, I'll use the why tactic, otherwise known as the belligerent toddler approach, where you, you say to them, so why do you think that will be a good idea? Just like a toddler does, right? Um, why, why, why do you think that'd be a good idea? Oh, because um, I want the, the experience to feel seamless. Okay, so why do you want it to feel seamless? Because it will improve customer loyalty. Great, thanks. Brilliant, right? So we've now got to the root of the business need that's underneath that and his, his vision of how that's interpreted into a solution. But that's a very woolly vision, right? So what I would then say to them is, let me, you know, give me some time to go away and put a bit of flesh on those bones, right? And so what I would do is I'd go away and create a storyboard of what that might look like. I'm working with a client right now like this, amazing visionary, right? And he's, we're trying to work out where the product's going to be in five years, right? So what I've suggested is, let me build the website that would sell the project in five years or prototype it. So you can see what that project would, product would be and how it'd be positioned in the market and all that. We'll imagine it as a prototype. So I normally create some kind of prototype, like the people in Disney that, that decided, yeah, we wanna, want people to be wearing a band that lets them into the park and opens their hotel door and lets them buy stuff, the Disney Magic Band. They created a prototype in a backlog that visualized that. So that's what I tend to do. I will fill in the gaps for them, right? Basically, I will turn it into something tangible that they can react to. Sometimes they react positively, sometimes they react negatively. And that's fine either way, because that's the process they go through. The trick with those people is you have to be, you have to explain that I need space and time to be able to do this, right? So, so we need a prototyping project to be able to define that. Now, there is a different scenario, mind, sorry. The scenario is where you're mid-project and they come up with some tangent. Is that what you were going to say, Jane? Yes. And also, once you did what you described, you come to the next meeting and they're like, oh, yeah, that's all right. But yeah, you know, the next thing, well, we should also yeah. do that. And then there is reason yeah. repeat. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So then we get into the scenario, right? 
You don't want to become the no person. You don't want to be that miserable ass that is always going no to them, right? So what I do, and this is generally how I deal with scope creep outside of those breaks in the project I mentioned earlier, but what I will do is early on in the project, right, I'll be the first one to come with, out with an idea that's out of scope, right? So I, you know, I will be straight in there with, oh, wouldn't it be amazing if we could do blah, 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 blah. Right. And, and I, because I'm a bit of the visionary type person in my character, if I'm honest, I'm the kind of annoying person you're talking about. So I'll be the first to come up with the idea and then I'll go, oh, oh, yeah, we must start a future phases list. Right. And I will create on Notion or somewhere else or Google Docs a page where we put in all of these ideas. Right. And I'll put my one on there and say, if you come up with anything, let me know and we'll shove it in, right? So now the visionary guy has got a place to put all of his ideas without it derailing the thing that you're currently doing. And as soon as he comes back, say, oh, that's a, you don't go, no, we can't do that. We don't have the time or the budget. You go in and say, no, that's an amazing idea. I love it. Let's put it on that list and we can review it once we've launched this phase one, Right. And then when we've done that, and you've got a massive big list, then you can start putting together a, a um, decision-making framework for going through those ideas and rating them and working out which ones have got legs. And that is something called digital triage that I came up with. That Again, search on that on my website and you'll find a link to it. Oh, digital triage. Yeah. I've heard of rice and ice things, which is a traditional, uh, traditional it's, it's one. A simple, it's basically a simpler version of that, <laughs> lighter weight. <laughs> What you described sounds a lot like a privilege of a very seasoned, mature, mm -hmm. and high-touch, expensive consultant. Uh, that yes. is, uh, specifically, yeah. having a dedicated pay discovery phase, not mm -hmm. always a thing for beginner mm -hmm. and yeah. like mid-range designers. Having a privilege of testing as a resource, mm -hmm. both in time and money, and mm -hmm. having a privilege of uh, time for all these additional things that you're saying. So it's yeah. either going to be unpaid work or very much cut scope and your idea kind of pulls apart. How do you do that in a mi mini version, mini version that can still work? All of this will still work on the smallest level. And I know that because a big part of my job is, is mentoring and coaching freelancers and agencies of doing all kinds of different size work. So it does work. It is a, is a matter of not dropping parts of the process, but rather scaling them down. So take a discovery phase. A discovery phase could be a, an hour, hour and a half meeting where you brainstorm objectives, user needs, um, those, you know, those kinds of things. It could be as simple as that, right? When it comes to testing, Testing, there is this presumption that testing is a luxury, but I would actually argue not testing is the luxury, right? Because in terms of you take, take for example, getting design sign off, right? You're going to have a meeting to discuss it. In that meeting is probably going to be at least three people. The meeting, if you're lucky, will last one hour. Right. So that's three man hours there immediately. OK, then on top of that, there's got to be revision time and there may be another meeting to discuss it again. In an hour, you can get survey results that prove the design is working. So which is more effective? You know, things like a five second test that I mentioned, things like semantic differential survey, things like the first click test. Those are all unfacilitated. They're all surveys. They can, you can set them up in a matter of minutes and get results back in an hour, right? And again, I'll get into more detail about doing that on the website. So really, it doesn't need to be a heavy-handed thing. Now, in terms of having a de dedicated discovery phase, well, they always have kickoff meetings anyway. So it's just a matter of making sure you cover the right things in those kickoff meetings. So really, there's nothing in here that can't be applied in pretty much any situation. The hardest thing is persuading people to break the projects down into chunks and not to try and create a timeline and an, uh, an estimate for the whole thing, right? Because they will ask you for it. Yes. 
they will. Because so, they will the, make a hiring decision based on the some yes. sort of budgeting idea. They, uh, they, and this, this they is, have their this point. Is, yeah, this is very much where I admit I am in a luxury, right? What I will do in that situation, and to be fair, I'm only in that luxury because I had the balls to try it and discover that it actually works. Work. It usually yeah. works, yes. People are so terrified of saying, no, I work this way to a prospective client. But as long as there's logic behind that, and as long as you present it well, that's fine. And in actual fact, it's a great way of differentiating yourself from the competition, right? But but set that aside. So what I would do if I was in that situation is I would say, look, here's my estimate for the whole thing, right? It's going, you know, it includes, it's roughly how much I think it's going to cost, how long it's going to take for the whole thing based on previous experience. Here's some other projects I worked on in the past that were similar lengths and similar sizes. So this is how much I think it will take. I would recommend budgeting that amount, right? That said, I don't want you to sign a contract with me today for that whole amount because I can't be 100% sure of the estimate. You've never worked with me before. You don't know whether you're going to like me or enjoy working with me, right? So instead, I just want you to send a, sign a contract for a fixed price discovery phase, right? Where we can try out the relationship together and we can work together on this project and see if everything goes well. If it does, then great, we can move on to the prototype and I'll give you a fixed price for that prototype because I'll know more to be able to do that by that stage, right? If you don't like me, you can take away the document that I've produced with the discovery phase results and go to somebody else. You've lost nothing. Right. So they love it because it reduces their risk. Right. And it differentiates you from the competition. And it's more realistic. As a customer of other consultants, I've actually done it myself, asking them to uncouple the uh, planning roadmap as a separate paid project to do that first before hiring them for execution so i mean the other the other great advantage to it which i often explain to my clients is i mean i will actually i I, increasingly these days and i do know this is a luxury i work time and materials rather than fixed price right and i can get away with doing that because i've built a reputation and people know and trust me already they might not know you but What you can do is say, well, look, if I'm just quoting you fixed price for the next stage, whether that be prototyping or discovery, I'm going to have a much better idea of how long that's going to take, right? Because I've done a bit of the upfront research, I'm better informed to be able to do that, which means I don't need to add the normal level of contingency that I will add in, right? Because inevitably, if you're trying to to, to cost a big amorphous mess, right, that you don't really fully understand, you play on the safe side, don't you? And if you get lucky, you walk away with a really healthy amount of money at the end that because you got lucky. But if you get unlucky, then you could lose money. But from a client's perspective, that means in theory, they could be overpaying for something just because you're you're overestimating how long it's going to take to play safe. However, if you carefully define that piece of work, because it's a smaller and more self-contained piece of work, you don't need to add a much more as much contingency, which means your price can be more competitive and it looks better for the potential client. It's interesting. I think we've arrived in to the very, very big topic of pricing for, for your services, which <laughs> yes. is like uh, basically yeah. another five hours. One. Yeah, yeah. Yes. What's worked for me, in the, because you're, you're saying time and materials is a privilege, but charging hour is like road to nowhere for the beginning designers. So like you take all the full circle from charged by hour, charged by the project, and then you go back to charging for time. But yeah. very expensive I mean, be, time or <laughs> yeah, I mean it depends on the the whole subject of pricing, I think is very dependent upon circumstances, right? For example, there is a tra- train of thought that you shouldn't be charging an hourly rate at all, right? It should be ch- value-based um, pricing, which is great depending on the type of work you're doing. Value-based pricing works great if you're you're you know doing an e-commerce site and you're increasing revenue by X amount, you can calculate the value. In other circumstances, I think it's a 
in my experience anyway, it's a bit of a, yeah, you're pushing your luck a bit with value-based pricing. So the other option is fixed price. Um, and again, that is completely valid. And I often do fixed price projects when I engage with a new client that doesn't really know me because it's a, it's a safety net for them. You know, they, they know how much it's going to cost and that that's great and fine. But then when I build a relationship with them, I say to them, look, it's probably going to work out cheaper if you move to time and materials because then you're not, you know, you're not um, paying any contingency I have to build into it to make sure I cover my costs. So it's very situational pricing. And I think there's a lot of, you read a lot of articles and a lot of opinions on it, which to be honest is is a bit kind of black and white about the whole thing when I don't think it really is. Because also, I mean, when I sit down and say, if I'm doing a fixed price project and I'm trying to cost that, just between you, me, and thousands of people listening to this, it's not just a matter of working out how many hours, right? It's also depending at do I think this client's going to be a pain in my butt, right? And if I do think they're going to be a pain in my butt, I'm adding a big old chunk on top of it to make myself feel better for having to deal <laughs> with this crappy client, you know? And then, and of course, the other aspect is how busy am I? If I'm really, really busy, well, I'll charge them more because I can, supply and demand, or it depends on who the client is. You know, I don't know, Apple have come to me wanting me as a consultant Oh, I'd really like them on my CV. I'll reduce the price. So there's, you know, pricing is a very subjective and, you know, conversation really. And I think far too many people say it's an absolute when it's not. In my old consulting days, I think I basically reinvented Agile by <laughs> charging first hourly, then daily, uh, which helped uh, so I could like aggregate design work by days, which increased yeah. like the minimum check size at least and idea. Yeah. And then I switched to weekly billing, which I spent a few years doing. That worked the best. We would just... In plain English, outline the scope for the next week. Everybody was happy. Not so much contingency baked in, like you said. So yeah. that, that worked for yeah. real life situations, not I mean, enterprisey projects. Yeah. I mean, my, my preferred way of working these days is time banks. So people buy a time bank of hours from me. Um, the more hours, Yeah. The more hours they buy, well, except in my case, they pay up front. I don't know what you did. But the Definitely. more hours they, yeah, the more hours they buy in one go, the cheaper it becomes to encourage them to buy a lot of hours and then they just kind of work through them as they as they want to you know and every time I you know start work on their project I start a timer and when I stop I turn it off but that's not for everybody there's you know it's it depends on how you want to work I guess the um key takeaway here is to do bigger billable chunks so it shifts mm. attention from hours towards like bigger investments they make into your work at least mentally yeah. Yeah, I mean, I still I still charge with hours. Mm -hmm. So people will buy, say, 30 hours at a go. But my pricing structure is such that it encourages them to buy more hours because it gets cheaper when they do that. But yeah, I mean, you're right. Because it's, it's less it's less admin involved in it. It's more, it's better for cash flow. It's, you know, better for planning, all that kind of stuff. So yes, I agree. Is there anything else? I forgot to ask that people should absolutely know when managing their design process. I think we've kind of covered most of it. I mean, this is, you know, normally something I do as a, <laughs> a six-hour workshop, so we haven't necessarily gone into a lot of detail about it all. But I think we, you know, those the, the combination of preparing before presentation, how to present, how to get feedback, how to engage with the client during the creation process, how to test in integrate testing. You get all of those elements in place and it suddenly becomes a lot, lot easier. I mean, I, I make, <laughs> I remember once with one of my mentorship clients saying, you know, if you do this process, if you, if you uh, prepare the client, engage the client right, and um, you test, you will have zero iteration. They will not turn around and ask for changes after you present the design. And she laughed at me, right? <laughs> um, and since she's tried it, she, and she's done many, many projects since then, she hasn't had any iterations. 
And for me, it's, I mean, don't forget, there, there will still be iteration when you test, right? Because you'll find things that are wrong with it, but you won't have iteration just based on whatever the whims of the stakeholders are. Uh, and you really, you really don't. It goes away. When I have my meetings now, they go, oh, looks good. Let's keep pushing on. That's it. You don't believe me either. I can see it in your face. No, no, no. And I actually do uh, because I can see exactly why you've built your process like you have. It feels hmm. more like step-by-step something that if, you build together versus you go retreat for five years and deliver yeah. something that is completely out of their imagination scope. Yeah. And the other, of course, the other huge advantage of this is that I know how long that process will take because I've done it before, right? Mm -hmm. Bang, 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 bang. Presentation, move on. So I can cost that much easier. Iteration and getting stuck into iteration hell is completely uncostable. Right. One project might go through like that and everything's great. The next one, you might spend weeks of revisions. Right. How do you cost that? You can't. Right. So it, you're, basically what I'm saying is I'd prefer to charge a little bit more up front and be a little bit more thorough up front to save me some random undeterminate amount of iteration time. Because too many of us spend our, our, we plan our projects like there is not going to be iteration, right? Or maybe one round or two rounds. And I've seen agencies do that. They say, well, we, we just limit our clients to two rounds of iteration. Oh, yeah. I bet that makes it so much easier. Because now you've just raised that bar of pressure even more that you've got to get this right through the first round of iteration. So I am going to send you faxes with things circled on them, drawings of <laughs> what I want and where I want it. And even then they're not going to be happy with it because they don't know how to do design, right? So that doesn't work either. Yeah, that never sounded right to me, uh, limiting people on two iterations, like even yeah. on articles or anything. It's just ridiculous to yeah. go talk about this minutia. I have one little question about procedures and ways that work or don't. That mm -hmm. is about questionnaires. So usually questionnaires are used widely uh, at the discovery stage. Yeah. Before the takeoff call, after the takeoff call, do you think questionnaires work at all? Uh, should they be replaced by like live collecting data from people? You're talking about stakeholders or end users? Uh, stakeholders. So somebody like a project manager would know everything and let you know that into a questionnaire that you provide for them. Yeah, I, I don't, why don't I have questionnaires? Probably because I'm too lazy. I'm too haphazard for that, maybe. No, I prefer a questionnaire is, a, a, yeah, okay. Like your website a, address, your target audience, product description, yeah, like yeah, give yeah. us your best articles, like how do you think like your voice and tone? Well, yeah, and I, I understand. I do, I tend to have that through conversation, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason that I do it through conversation rather than surveys is because, or a questionnaire is because the questionnaire becomes a barrier between you and your client, right? It's a, a thing you send them, they fill it in, they send it back. While a conversation allows me to start building rapport and relationship with the client. It gives me a chance to chat about it and knock ideas around. And maybe I throw an idea at them and they throw an idea at us. It builds a connection and a rapport and a working relationship, which personally I think pays dividends later down the line in terms of they're less likely to reject what I produce because they feel more engaged with it. They feel more of a part of it. While a, a, a questionnaire feels like a bit of a barrier, but I, I think that's a matter of stylistic difference more than anything. I don't think I can really justify that. I think a questionnaire is fine. It's just not the way I go. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That, that, that definitely helps. Well, thank you so much for your advice today. Right. You mentioned the workshop, so feel free to promote it like, really strong right now uh and also where in general where can people find you online i can't promote the workshop because i don't have a recorded version that people can just go and buy unfortunately it's one that i did actually it's not entirely true if you happen to be an owner if you happen to subscribe to front end masters 
you could get it via them, but you can't just go and buy it. You have to kind of subscribe to Front End Masters. There's a link to it on the homepage, halfway down my homepage, there's courses and it's got a link through. So you could go and look at it there. But no, I don't have it that you can just kind of buy off the shelf, which is a bit of a shame really, because yeah, you're right. It would be a perfect thing for me to, to flog at this point. If you want to find out more about me and the stuff I do, then boagworld.com is the place to go. Um, last time I was on, I gave out a URL, which was boag.world forward slash UI breakfast, which encouraged you to sign up to my mailing list. And I bribed you with a free copy of my book, which is about conversion rate optimization and encouraging people to click without using shady tricks. So you can, that's still open. It's still there. So feel free to go and use that if you want to. Amazing. Thank you so much for your advice. And have a wonderful rest of your week. I will do. Thank you very much for having me on.